Chapter 4, Section 3 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 4, Painting and Sculpture. Section 3, Works of Sculpture. To this day, the most ancient statue known is a colossus, namely the Great Sphinx of Giza. It was already in existence at the time of Khufu, Cheops, and perhaps we should not be far wrong if we ventured to ascribe it to the generations before Menna, called in the priestly chronicles the servants of Horus. Hewn in the living rock at the extreme verge of the Libyan plateau, it seems, as the representative of Horus, to uprear its head in order to be the first to catch sight of his father, Ra the rising sun, across the valley. For centuries the sands have buried it to the chin, yet, without protecting it from ruin, its battered body preserves but the general form of a lion's body. The paws and breast, restored by the Ptolemies and the Caesars, retain but a part of the stone facing, with which they were then closed, in order to mask the ravages of time. The lower part of the headdress has fallen, and the diminished neck looks too slender to sustain the enormous weight of the head. The nose and beard have been broken off by fanatics and the red hue which formerly enlivened the features is almost wholly effaced, and yet, notwithstanding its fallen fortunes, the monster preserves an expression of sovereign strength and greatness. The eyes gaze out afar with a look of intense and profound thoughtfulness. The mouth still wears a smile. The whole countenance is informed with power and repose. The art which conceived and carved this prodigious statue was a finished art an art which had attained self-mastery and which was sure of its effects. How many centuries had it taken to arrive at this degree of maturity and perfection? In certain pieces belonging to various museums, such as the statues of Sipa and his wife at the Louvre, and the bas-reliefs of the tomb of Kabiosukari at Giza, critics have mistakenly recognised the faltering first efforts of an unskilled people. The stiffness of attitude and gesture, the exaggerated squareness of the shoulders, the line of green paint under the eyes, in a word, all those characteristics which are quoted as signs of extreme antiquity are found in certain monuments of the 5th and 6th dynasties. The contemporary sculptors of any given period were not all equally skilful. If some were capable of doing good work, the greater number were mere craftsmen, and we must be careful not to ascribe awkward manipulation or lack of teaching to the timidity of archaism. The works of the primitive dynasties yet sleep undiscovered beneath 70 feet of sand at the foot of the sphinx those of the historic dynasties are daily exhumed from the depths of the neighbouring tombs these have not yielded egyptian art as a whole but they have familiarised us with one of its schools the school of memphis the delta hermopolis abydos the environs of thebes and aswan do not appear upon the stage earlier than towards the sixth dynasty and even so we know them through but a small number of sepulchres long since violated and despoiled the loss is probably not very great memphis was the capital and thither the presence of the pharaohs must have attracted all the talent of the vassal principalities judging from the results of our excavations in the memphite necropolis alone it is possible to determine the characteristics of both sculpture and painting in the time of seneferu and his successors with as much exactness as if we were already in possession of all the monuments which the valley of the Nile yet holds in reserve for future explorers. 
the lesser folk of the art world excelled in the manipulation of brush and chisel, and that their skill was of a high order is testified by the thousands of tableaus they have left behind them. The relief is low, the colour sober, the composition learned. Architecture, trees, vegetation, irregularities of ground are summarily indicated and are introduced only when necessary to the due interpretation of the scene represented. Men and animals, on the other hand, are rendered with a wealth of detail, a truth of character, and sometimes a force of treatment to which the later schools of Egyptian art rarely attained. Six wooden panels from the tomb of Hesse in the Giza Museum represent perhaps the finest known specimens of this branch of art. Mariette ascribed them to the Third Dynasty, and he may perhaps have been right, though for my own part I incline to date them from the Fifth Dynasty. In these panels there is nothing that can be called a subject. Hesse either sits or stands, and has four or five columns of hieroglyphs above his head. But the firmness of line, the subtlety of modelling, the ease of execution are unequalled. Never has wood been cut with a more delicate chisel or a firmer hand. The variety of attitude and gesture, which we so much admire in the Egyptian bas-relief, is lacking to the statues. A mourner weeping, a woman bruising corn for bread, a baker rolling dough, are subjects as rare in the round as they are common in bas-relief. In sculpture, the figure is generally represented either standing with the feet side by side and quite still, or with one leg advanced in the act of walking, or seated upon a chair or a cube, or kneeling, or still more frequently sitting on the ground cross-legged, as the fellahin are wont to sit to this day. This intentional monotony of style would be inexplicable if we were ignorant of the purpose for which the statues were intended. They represent the dead man for whom the tomb was made, his family, his servants, his slaves, and his kinfolk. The master is always shown sitting or standing, and he could not consistently be seen in any other attitude. The tomb is, in fact, the house in which he rests after the labours of life, as once he used to rest in his earthly home, and the scenes depicted upon the walls represent the work which he was officially credited with performing. Here he superintends the preliminary operations necessary to raise the food by which he is to be nourished in the form of funerary offerings, namely seed-sowing, harvesting, stock-breeding, fishing, hunting, and the like. In short, he superintends all the labour which is done for the eternal dwelling. When thus engaged, he is always standing upright, his head uplifted, his hands pendant, or holding the staff and baton of command. Elsewhere, the diverse offerings are brought to him one by one, and then he sits in a chair of state. These are his two attitudes. Whether as a bas-relief subject or a statue, standing he receives the homage of his vassals, Sitting, he partakes of the family repast. The people of his household comport themselves before him as becomes their business and station. His wife either stands beside him, sits on the same chair or on a second chair by his side, or squats beside his feet as during his lifetime. His son, if a child at the time when the statue was ordered, is represented in the garb of infancy, or with the bearing and equipment proper to his position if a man. The slaves bruise the corn, the cellarers tar the wine jars, the hired mourners weep and tear their hair. His little social world followed the Egyptian to his tomb, the duties of his attendants being prescribed for them after death, just as they had been prescribed for them during life, and the kind of influence which the religious conception of the soul exercised of the art of the sculptor did not end there. From the moment that the statue is regarded as the support of the double, it becomes a condition of primary importance that the statue shall reproduce, at least in the abstract, the proportions and distinctive peculiarities of the corporeal body, and this in order that the double shall more easily adapt himself to his new body of stone or wood. The head is therefore always a faithful portrait, but the body, on the contrary, is, as it were, 
a medium kind of body, representing the original at his highest development, and consequently able to exert the fullness of his physical powers when admitted to the society of the gods. Hence, men are always sculptured in the prime of life, and women with the delicate proportions of early womanhood. This conventional idea was never departed from, unless in cases of very marked deformity. The statue of a dwarf reproduced all the ugly peculiarities of the dwarf's own body, and it was important that it should so reproduce them. If a statue of the ordinary type had been placed in the tomb of the dead man, his car, accustomed during life to the deformity of his limbs, would not be able to adapt itself to an upright and shapely figure, and would therefore be deprived of the conditions necessary to his future well-being. The artist was free to vary the details and arrange the accessories according to his fancy, but without missing the point of his work, he could not change the attitude or depart from the general style of the conventional portrait statue. This persistent monotony of poise and subject produces a depressing effect upon the spectator, an effect which is augmented by the obtrusive character given to the supports. These statues are mostly backed by a kind of rectangular pediment, which is either squared off just at the base of the skull, or carried up in a point and lost in the headdress, or rounded at the top and shown above the head of the figure. The arms are seldom separated from the body, but are generally in one piece with the sides and hips. The whole length of the leg, which is placed in advance of the other, is very often connected with the pediment by a band of stone. It has been conjectured that this course was imposed upon the sculptor by reason of the imperfection of his tools, and the consequent danger of fracturing the statue when cutting away the superfluous material, an explanation which may be correct as regard the earliest schools, but which does not hold good for the time of the Fourth Dynasty. We could point out more than one piece of sculpture of that period, even in granite, in which all the limbs are free, having been cut away by means of either the chisel or the drill. If pediment supports were persisted in to the end, their use must have been due not to helplessness, but to routine or to an exaggerated respect for ancient method. Most museums are poor in statues of the Memphite school. France and Egypt possess, however, some twenty specimens, which suffice to ensure it an honourable place in the history of art. At the Louvre we have the cross-legged scribe, and the statues of Skemkar and Pa'unefer. At Giza there are the Sheik el Beled and his wife, Kafra, Ranefer, the prince, and general Rahotep, and his wife Nefert, a kneeling scribe and a cross-legged scribe. The original of the cross-legged scribe of the Louvre was not a handsome man but the vigour and fidelity of his portrait amply compensate for the absence of ideal beauty. His legs are crossed and laid flat to the ground in one of those attitudes common among Orientals, yet all but impossible to Europeans. The bust is upright and well balanced upon the hips. The head is uplifted. The right hand holds the reed pen, which pauses in its place on the open papyrus scroll. Thus, for six thousand years, he has waited for his master to go on with the long interrupted dictation. The face is square-cut, and the strongly marked features indicate a man in the prime of life. The mouth, wide and thin-lipped, rises slightly towards the corners, which are lost in the projecting muscles by which it is framed in. The cheeks are bony and lank, the ears are thick and heavy, and stand out well from the head. The thick, coarse hair is cut close above the brow. The eyes, which are large and well open, owe their lifelike vivacity to an ingenious contrivance of the ancient artist. The orbit has been cut out from the stone, the hollow being filled with an eye composed of enamel, white and black. The edges of the eyelids are of bronze, and a small silver nail inserted behind the iris receives and reflects light in such wise as to imitate the light of life. The contours of the flesh are somewhat full and wanting in firmness, as would be the case in middle life, if the man's occupation debarred him from active exercise. 
the forms of the arm and back are in good relief the hands are hard and bony with fingers of somewhat unusual length and the knees are sculptured with a minute attention to anatomical details the whole body is as it were informed by the expression of the face and is dominated by the attentive suspense which breathes in every feature the muscles of the arm of the bust and of the shoulder are caught in half repose and are ready to return at once to work this careful observance of the professional attitude or the characteristic gesture is equally marked in the Giza cross-legged scribe and in all the ancient empire statues which i have had the opportunity of studying the cross-legged scribe of Giza was discovered by monsieur de morgan at saqqara in the beginning of eighteen ninety three this statue exhibits a no less surprising vigour and certainty of intention and execution on the part of the sculptor than does its fellow of the louvre while representing a younger man of full firm and supple figure Kafra is a king he sits squarely upon his chair of state his hands upon his knees his chest thrown forward his head erect his gaze confident had the emblems of his rank been destroyed and the inscription effaced which tells his name his bearing alone would have revealed the pharaoh every trait is characteristic of the man who from childhood upwards has known himself to be invested with sovereign authority ranefa belonged to one of the great feudal families of his time he stands upright his arms down his left leg forward in the attitude of a prince inspecting a march past of his vassals the countenance is haughty the attitude bold but ranefa does not impress us with the almost superhuman calm and decision of Kafra. general rahotep despite his title and his high military rank looks as if he were of inferior birth stalwart and square-cut he has somewhat of the rustic in his physiognomy nefert on the contrary was a princess of the blood royal and her whole person is as it were informed with a certain air of resolution and command which the sculptor has expressed very happily she wears a close-fitting garment opening to a point in front the shoulders bosom and bodily contours are modelled under the drapery with a grace and reserve which it is impossible to praise too highly her face round and plump is framed in masses of fine black hair confined by a richly ornamented bandeau this wedded pair are in limestone painted the husband being coloured of a reddish-brown hue and the wife of a tawny buff turning to the sheikh el beled we descend several degrees in the social scale raim Kar was a superintendent of works which probably means that he was an overseer of corvee labour at the time of the building of the great pyramids he belonged to the middle class and his whole person expresses vulgar contentment and self-satisfaction we seem to see him in the act of watching his workmen his staff of acacia wood in his hand the feet of the statue had perished but have been restored the body is stout and heavy and the neck thick the head despite its vulgarity does not lack energy the eyes are inserted like those of the cross-legged scribe by a curious coincidence the statue which was found at saqqara happened to be strikingly like the local sheik el beled or headman of the village always quick to seize upon the amusing side of an incident the arab diggers at once called it the sheik el beled and it has retained the name ever since the statue of his wife interred beside his own is unfortunately mutilated it is a mere trunk without legs or arms yet enough remains to show that the figure represented a good type of egyptian middle-class matron commonplace in appearance and somewhat acid of temper the kneeling scribe of the Giza collection belongs to the lowest middle-class rank such as it is at the present day had he not been dead more than six thousand years i could protest that i had not long ago met him face to face in one of the little towns of upper egypt he had just bought a roll of papyrus or a tablet covered with writing 
for his master's approval kneeling in the prescribed attitude of an inferior his hands crossed his shoulders rounded his head slightly bent forward he waits till the great man shall have read it through of what is he thinking a scribe might feel some not unreasonable apprehensions when summoned thus into the presence of his superior the stick played a prominent part in official life and an error of addition a fault in orthography or an order misunderstood would be enough to bring down a shower of blows the sculptor has with inimitable skill seized the expression of resigned uncertainty and passive gentleness which is the result of a whole life of servitude there is a smile upon his lips but it is the smile of etiquette in which there is no gladness the nose and cheeks are puckered up in harmony with the forced grimace upon the mouth his large eyes again an enamel have the fixed look of one who waits vacantly without making any effort to concentrate his sight or his thoughts upon a definite object his face lacks both intelligence and vivacity but his work after all called for no special nimbleness of wit kafra is in diorite raemka and his wife are carved in wood the other statues named are of limestone yet whatever the material employed the play of chisel is alike free subtle and delicate the head of the scribe and the bas-relief portrait of Ferramenkahor in the louvre the dwarf Nemhotep, and the slaves who prepare food offerings at giza are in no wise inferior to the cross-legged scribe or the sheik el beled the baker kneading his dough is thoroughly in his work his half-stooping attitude and the way in which he leans upon the kneading trough are admirably natural the dwarf has a big elongated head balanced by two enormous ears he has a foolish face an ill-shapen mouth and narrow slits of eyes inclining upwards to the temples the bust is well developed but the trunk is out of proportion with the rest of his person the artist has done his best to disguise the lower limbs under a fine white tunic but one feels that it is too long for the little man's arms and legs the thighs could have existed only in a rudimentary form and nemhotep standing as best he can upon his misshapen feet seems to be off his balance and ready to fall forward upon his face it would be difficult to find another work of art in which the characteristics of dwarfdom are more cleverly reproduced the sculpture of the first theban empire is in close connection with that of memphis methods materials design composition all are borrowed from the elder school the only new departure being in proportions assigned to the human figure from the time of the eleventh dynasty the legs become longer and slighter the hips smaller the body and neck more slender works of this period are not to be compared with the best productions of the earlier centuries the wall paintings of siot of bersheh of beni hassan and of aswan are not equal to those in the mastabas of saqqara and giza nor are the most carefully executed contemporary statues worthy to take a place beside the sheik al beled or the cross-legged scribe portrait statues of private persons especially those found at thebes are so far as i have seen decidedly bad the execution being rude and the expression vulgar the royal statues of this period which are nearly all in black or grey granite have been for the most part usurped by kings of later date usertesen the third whose head and feet are in the louvre was appropriated by amenhotep the third as the sphinx of the louvre and the colossi of giza were appropriated by rameses the second many museums possess specimens of supposed ramesside pharaohs which upon more careful inspection we are compelled to ascribe to the thirteenth or fourteenth dynasty those of undisputed identity such as sebekhotep the third of the louvre the mermashiu of tanis the sebekhemsaf of giza and the colossi of the isle of argo though very skilfully executed are wanting in originality and vigour one would say indeed that the sculptors had purposely endeavoured 
to turn them all out after the one smiling and commonplace pattern great is the contrast when we turn from these giant dolls to the black granite sphinxes discovered by mariette at tanis in eighteen sixty one and by him ascribed to the hyksos period here energy at all events is not lacking wiry and compact the lion's body is shorter than in sphinxes of the usual type the head instead of wearing the customary claft or headgear of folded linen is clothed with an ample mane which surrounds the face the eyes are small the nose is aquiline and depressed at the tip the cheekbones are prominent the lower lip slightly protrudes the general effect of the face is in short so unlike the types we are accustomed to find in egypt that it has been accepted in proof of an asiatic origin these sphinxes are unquestionably anterior to the eighteenth dynasty because one of the kings of avarus named apepi has cut his name upon the shoulder of each arguing from this fact it was however too hastily concluded that they are works of the time of that prince on a closer examination we see that they had already been dedicated to some pharaoh of a yet earlier period and that apepi had merely usurped them and monsieur golinishef has shown that they were made for amenemhat the third of the twelfth dynasty with his features those so-called hyksos monuments may be the product of a local school the origin of which may have been independent and its traditions quite different from the traditions of the memphite workshops but except at abydos el kab aswan and some two or three other places the provincial art of egypt is so little known to us that i dare not lay too much stress upon this hypothesis whatever the origin of the tanite school it continued to exist long after the expulsion of the hyksos invaders since one of its best examples a group representing the nile of the north and the nile of the south bearing trays laden with flowers and fish was consecrated by Pisep Kanu of the twenty first dynasty the first three dynasties of the new empire have bequeathed us more monuments than all the others put together painted bas-reliefs statues of kings and private persons colossi sphinxes may be counted by hundreds between the mouths of the nile and the fourth cataract the old sacerdotal cities memphis thebes abydos are naturally the richest but so great was the impetus given to art that even remote provincial towns such as abu simbel redesia and meshik have their chefs de oeuvre like the great cities the official portraits of amenhotep i at turin of thothmes and thothmes III at the british museum at karnak at turin and at giza are conceived in the style of the twelfth and thirteenth dynasties and are deficient in originality but the bas-reliefs in temples and tombs show a marked advance upon those of the earlier ages the modelling is finer the figures are more numerous and better grouped the relief is higher the effects of perspective are more carefully worked out the wall subjects of dir el bahari the tableau in the tombs of hui of re khmara of anna of kamha and of twenty more at thebes are surprisingly rich brilliant and varied awakening to a sense of the picturesque art has introduced into their compositions all those details of architecture of uneven ground of foreign plants and the like which formerly they neglected or barely indicated the taste for the colossal which had fallen somewhat into abeyance since the time of the great sphinx came once again to the surface and was developed anew amenhotep the third was not content with statues of twenty-five or thirty feet in height such as were in favour among his ancestors those which he erected in advance of his memorial chapel on the left bank of the nile in western thebes one of which is the vocal memnon of the classic writers sit fifty feet high each was carved from a single block of sandstone and they are as elaborately finished as though they were of ordinary size the avenues of sphinxes which this pharaoh marshalled before the temples of luxor and karnak do not come to an end at fifty or a hundred yards from the gateway 
but are prolonged for great distances in one avenue they have the human head upon the lion's body in another they're fashioned in the semblance of kneeling rams kuanatan the revolutionary successor of amatep the third far from discouraging this movement did what he could to promote it never perhaps were egyptian sculptors more unrestricted than by him at tel el amana military reviews chariot driving popular festivals state receptions the distribution of honours and rewards by the king in person representations of palaces villas and gardens were among the subjects which they were permitted to treat and these subjects differed in so many respects from traditional routine that they could give free play to their fancy and to their natural genius the spirit and gusto with which they took advantage of their opportunities would scarcely be believed by one who had not seen their works at tel el amana some of their bas-reliefs are designed in almost correct perspective and in all the life and stir of large crowds are rendered with irreproachable truth the political and religious reaction which followed this reign arrested the evolution of art and condemned sculptors and painters to return to the observance of traditional rules their personal influence and their teaching continued however to make themselves felt under horemheb under seti the first and even under rameses the second if during more than a century egyptian art remained free graceful and refined that improvement was due to the school of tel el amana in no instance perhaps did it produce work more perfect than the bas-reliefs of the temple of abydos or those of the tomb of seti i the head of the conqueror always studied con amor is a marvel of reserved and sensitive grace rameses the second charging the enemy at abu simbel is as fine as the portraits of seti i though in another style the action of the arm which brandishes the lance is somewhat angular but the expression of strength and triumph which animates the whole person of the warrior king and the despairing resignation of the vanquished compensate for this one defect the group of horemheb and the god amen in the museum of turin is a little dry in treatment the faces of both god and king lack expression and their bodies are heavy and ill-balanced the fine colossi and red granite which horemheb placed against the uprights of the inner door of his first pylon at karnak the bas-reliefs on the wall of his spios at silsilis his own portrait and that of one of the ladies of his family now in the museum of giza are so to say spotless and faultless the queen's face is animated and intelligent the eyes are large and prominent the mouth is wide but well shaped the head is carved in hard limestone of a creamy tint which seems to soften the somewhat satirical expression of her eyes and smile the king is in black granite and the sombre hue of the stone at once produces a mournful impression upon the spectator his youthful face is pervaded by an air of melancholy such as we rarely see depicted in portraits of pharaohs of the great period the nose is straight and delicate the eyes are long the lips are large full somewhat contracted at the corners and strongly defined at the edges the chin is overweighted by the traditional false beard every detail is treated with as much skill as if the sculptor were dealing with a soft stone instead of with a material which resisted the chisel such indeed is the mastery of the execution that one forgets the difficulties of the task in the excellence of the results it is unfortunate that egyptian artists never signed their works for the sculptor of this portrait of horemheb deserves to be remembered like the eighteenth dynasty the nineteenth dynasty delighted in colossi those of rameses the second at luxor measured from eighteen to twenty feet in height the colossal rameses of the rameseum sat sixty feet in height and that of tanis about seventy the colossi of abu simbel without being of quite such formidable proportions faced the river in imposing array to say that the decline of egyptian art began with rameses the second is a commonplace of contemporary criticism yet 
nothing is less true than an axiom of this kind many statues and bas-reliefs executed during his reign are no doubt inconceivably rude and ugly but these are chiefly found in provincial towns where the schools were indifferent and where the artists had no fine examples before them at thebes at memphis at abydos at tanis in those towns of the delta where the court habitually resided and even at abu simbel and beit al wali the sculptors of rameses the second yield nothing in point of excellence to those of seti the first or and horemheb the decadence did not begin till after the reign of merentah when civil war and foreign invasion brought egypt to the brink of destruction the arts like all else suffered and rapidly declined it is sad to follow their downward progress under the later ramesides whether in the wall subjects of the royal tombs or the bas-reliefs of the temple of khonsu or on the columns of the hypostyle hall at karnak woodcarving maintained its level during a somewhat longer period the admirable statues of priests and children at Turin date from the twentieth dynasty the advent of sheshnok and the intercene strife of the provinces at length completed the ruin of thebes and the school which had produced so many masterpieces perished miserably the renaissance did not dawn till near the end of the ethiopian dynasty some three hundred years later the overpraised statue of queen amenritis already manifests some noteworthy qualities the limbs somewhat long and fragile are delicately treated but the head is heavy being overweighted by the wig peculiar to goddesses sarmeticus i when his victories had established him upon the throne busied himself in the restoration of the temples under his auspices the valley of the nile became one vast studio of painting and sculpture the art of engraving hieroglyphs attained a high degree of excellence fine statues and bas-reliefs were everywhere multiplied and a new school arose a marvellous command of material a profound knowledge of detail and a certain elegance tempered by severity are the leading characteristics of this new school the memphites preferred limestone the thebans selected red or grey granite but the sartes especially attacked basalt breccia and serpentine and with these fine-grained and almost homogeneous substances they achieved extraordinary results they seem to have sought difficulties for the mere pleasure of triumphing over them and we have proof of the way in which artists of real merit bestowed years and years on the chasing of sarcophagus lids and the carving of statues in blocks of the hardest material the thewerus and the four monuments from the tomb of sarmeticus in the giza museum are the most remarkable objects hitherto discovered in this class of work thewerus was the especial protectress of maternity and presided over childbirth her portrait was discovered by some native sebak diggers in the midst of the mounds of the ancient city of thebes she was found standing upright in a little chapel of white limestone which had been dedicated to her by one pibessa a priest in the name of queen nitocris daughter of sarmeticus i this charming hippopotamus whose figure is perhaps more plump than graceful is a fine example of the difficulties overcome but i do not know that she has any other merit the group belonging to sarmeticus has at all events some artistic value it consists of four pieces of green basalt namely a table of offerings a statue of osiris a statue of nephthys and a hathor cow supporting a statuette of the deceased all four are somewhat flaccid somewhat artificial but the faces of the divinities and the deceased are not wanting in sweetness the action of the cow is good and the little figure under her protection falls naturally into its place certain other pieces less known than these are however far superior the side style is easy of recognition it lacks the breadth and learning of the first memphis school it also lacks the grand and sometimes rude manner of the great theban school 
the proportions of the human body are reduced and elongated, and the limbs lose in vigour what they gain in elegance. A noteworthy change in the choice of attitudes will also be remarked. Orientals find repose in postures which would be inexpressibly fatiguing to ourselves. For hours together they will kneel or sit tailor-wise with the legs crossed and laid down flat to the ground, or squat, sitting upon their heels with no other support than is afforded by that part of the sole of the foot which rests upon the ground, or they will sit upon the floor with their legs close together and their arms crossed upon their knees. These four attitudes were customary among the people from the time of the ancient empire. This we know from bas-reliefs, but the Memphite sculptors, deeming the two last ungraceful, excluded them from the domain of art and rarely, if ever, reproduced them. The cross-legged scribe of the Louvre and the kneeling scribe of Giza show with what success they could employ the two first. The third was neglected, doubtless for the same reason, by the Theban sculptors. The fourth began to be currently adopted about the time of the 18th dynasty. It may be that this position was not in fashion among the moneyed classes, which alone could afford to order statues. Or it may be that the artists themselves objected to an attitude which caused their sitters to look like square parcels with a human head on the top. The sculptors of the Sate period did not inherit that repugnance. They have, at all events, combined the action of the limbs in such a wise as may least offend the eye, and the position almost ceases to be ungraceful. The heads also are modelled to such perfection that they make up for many shortcomings. That of Petashashi has an expression of youth and intelligent gentleness such as we seldom meet with from an Egyptian hand. Other heads, on the contrary, are remarkable for their almost brutal frankness of treatment. In the small head of a scribe, lately purchased for the Louvre, and in another belonging to Prince Ibrahim at Cairo, the wrinkled brow, the crow's feet at the corners of the eyes, the hard lines about the mouth, and the knobs upon the skull are brought out with scrupulous fidelity. The side school was, in fact, divided into two parties. One sought inspiration in the past, and, by return to the methods of the old Memphite school, endeavoured to put fresh life into the effeminate style of the day. This it accomplished, and so successfully, that its works are sometimes mistaken for the best productions of the 4th and 5th dynasties. The other, without too openly departing from established tradition, preferred to study from the life, and thus drew nearer to nature than any previous age. The school would perhaps have prevailed, had Egyptian art not been directed into a new channel, by the Macedonian conquest, and by centuries of intercourse with the Greeks. The new departure was a slow development. Sculptors began by clothing the successors of Alexander in Egyptian garb, and transforming them into pharaohs, just as they had in olden time transformed the Hyksos and the Persians. Works dating from the reigns of the first Ptolemies scarcely differ from those of the best Sa'ite period, and it is only here and there that we detect traces of Greek influence. Thus the Colossus of Alexander II at Giza wears a flowing headdress, from beneath which his crisp curls have found their way. Soon, however, the sight of Greek masterpieces led the Egyptians of Alexandria, of Memphis, and of the cities of the Delta to modify their artistic methods. Then arose a mixed school which combined certain elements of the national art with certain other elements borrowed from Hellenic art. The Alexandrian Isis of the Giza Museum is clad as the Isis of Pharaonic times, but she has lost the old, slender shape and straightened bearing. A mutilated effigy of a prince of Siet, also at Giza, would almost pass for an indifferent Greek statue. The most forcible work of this hybrid class which has come down to us is the portrait statue of one Hor, discovered at the foot of Comed Damas, the site of the tomb of Alexander. The head is good, though in a somewhat dry style. The long pinched nose, the close-set eyes, the small mouth with drawn-in corners, 
the square chin every feature in short contributes to give a hard and obstinate character to the face the hair is closely cropped yet not so closely as to prevent it from dividing naturally into thick short curls the body clothed in the shlamis is awkwardly shapen and too narrow for the head one arm hangs pendant the other is brought round to the front the feet are lost all these monuments are the result of few excavations and i do not doubt that the soil of alexandria would yield many such if it could be methodically explored the school which produced them continued to draw nearer and nearer to the schools of greece and the stiff manner which is never wholly lost was scarcely regarded as a defect at an epoch when certain sculptors in the service of rome especially affected the archaic style i should not be surprised if those statues of priests and priestesses wearing divine insignia with which hadrian adorned the egyptian rooms of his villa at tibor might not be attributed to the artists of this hybrid school in those parts which were remote from the delta native art being left to its own resources languished and slowly perished nor was this because greek models or even greek artists were lacking in the thebaid in the Fayum at cyrene i have both discovered and purchased statuettes and statues of hellenic style and of correct and careful execution one of these from koptos is apparently a miniature replica of a venus analogous to the venus of milo but the principal sculptors were too dull or too ignorant to take such advantage of these models as was taken by their alexandrian brethren when they sought to render the greek suppleness of figure and fullness of limb they only succeeded in missing the rigid but learned precision of their former masters in place of the fine delicate low relief of the old school they adopted a relief which though very prominent was soft round and feebly modelled the eyes of their personages have a foolish leer the nostrils slant upwards the corners of the mouth the chin and indeed all the features are drawn up as if converging towards a central point which is stationed in the middle of the ear two schools each independent of the other have bequeathed their works to us the least known flourished in ethiopia at the court of the half-civilized kings who resided at Moro. a group bought from naga in 1882 and now in the giza collection shows the work of this school during the first century of our era a god and a queen standing side by side are roughly cut in a block of grey granite the work is coarse and heavy but not without energy isolated and lost in the midst of savage tribes the school which produced it sank rapidly into barbarism and expired towards the end of the age of the antonines the egyptian school sheltered by the power of rome survived a little longer as sagacious as the ptolemies the caesars knew that by flattering the religious prejudices of their egyptian subjects they consolidated their own rule in the valley of the nile at an enormous cost they restored and rebuilt the temples of the national gods working after the old plans and in the old spirit of pharaonic times the great earthquake of b c twenty two destroyed thebes which now became a mere place of pilgrimage where their devotees repaired to listen to the voice of memnon at the rising of aurora but at dendera and ombos tiberius and claudius finished the decoration of the great temples caligula worked at koptos and the antonines enriched esna and philae the gangs of workmen employed in their names were still competent to cut thousands of bas-reliefs according to the rules of the olden time their work was feeble ungraceful absurd inspired solely by routine yet it was founded on antique tradition tradition enfeebled and degenerate but still alive the troubles which convulsed the third century of our era the incursions of barbarians the progress and triumph of christianity caused the suspension of the latest works and the dispersion of the last craftsmen with them died all that yet survived of the national art End of chapter four
Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.